Hello and welcome to Haaretz Weekend. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer, joining you from our studios in Tel Aviv. Later on today's show, we are going to talk about Israel's decision not to welcome large numbers of non-Jewish Ukrainians fleeing their country with open arms. We'll talk about it with Yadin Alam, an immigration attorney to whom many are turning for help. We'll talk with Yadin about the obstacles they're facing and the problems of their relatives in Israel who want to open their homes to them. But first... What in the world is Vladimir Putin thinking right now? And what will he do next? After two weeks since the invasion of Ukraine, we'll look for answers in a conversation with Julia Yaffe, a veteran U.S. journalist who is herself a Jewish emigre from the former Soviet Union and has been following the career of the Russian president for years. That conversation coming right up. Julia Yaffe is a co-founder and the Washington correspondent for the news site Puck. She is well known for her in-depth reporting on politics and foreign policy, and in particular for her Russia expertise. Her work has appeared in Politico, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The New York Times, New Yorker, among other publications. Hi, Julia. Thank you so much for joining us long distance. Thanks for having me. When we talk about your Russia expertise, it's not just professional, right, but personal. Yourself, a Jewish emigre from the former Soviet Union, having come to the U.S. as a child, right? That's right. I know you have a lot of people like me in Israel. In fact, a lot of our friends and family members went to Israel when we emigrated, but the majority came to the U.S. We moved here in 1990 when I was seven as part of that big wave of Soviet Jewish refugees. Right. We're familiar. We got hit by that wave, too. (laughs) So you have characterized your viewpoint, I like this, as that of a pessimistic Soviet Jew. And you're getting kind of famous for your pessimism, right? Uh, You and Stephen Colbert bantered about it on uh, late night television. It kind of looks like, you know, the pessimists are on point these days. Everyone was playing out the different scenarios of what would happen, what would Vladimir Putin do? And it turns out the more pessimistic, the more accurate, right? I hate when people call me a pessimist or they say, oh, that's so Russian, that's so cynical, that's so dark. But I don't come to it from the point of view of, I'm not a dark, cynical person. I'm pretty happy and optimistic about a lot of things, but I just don't see it from the point of view of pessimism or optimism. I see it from the point of view of reality, you know, what is more or less likely to happen This time around, I really was looking for reasons for Putin not to invade. A lot of that was wishful thinking on my part because I was like, this would be so horrible if he did this. Any hope I had on that count just went up in flames. And I went back again to my instinct on Russia, which is think of the worst case scenario or the thing that people say, oh, he couldn't possibly do that. That's the thing he's going to do. I really resent when Americans say it's so dark and so cynical as if history, as if politics, as if the world owes them hope, Mm -hmm. as if the world owes them optimism. It's like they're personally offended when things don't have a happy ending. And I find it so obnoxiously privileged and spoiled. You mentioned my family immigrating. I remember when we first moved to the US and my parents started going to the movies and they were like, what the hell is wrong with all these American movies? They're so unrealistic. They all have happy endings. I mean, life 
doesn't always work out. And you don't have to be a cynic or negative person if you have just a, a more realistic outlook on life. I blame Disney, too many Disney movies, right? <laughs> Hollywood has a role to play in this too. But I think a lot of this is just kind of baked into the American psyche. And also a lot of this is post-World War II mentality of the victor, right? And they kind of came in at the very end in Europe, got to share the victor's podium after the Soviet Union did most of the fighting and dying. And also just, you know, America has never been invaded. It's never been occupied. It has two friendly neighbors and two oceans surrounding it. People from my part of the world and her people in Israel too, have a lot of family trauma that's been passed down from generation to generation where things don't always work out and didn't work out for a lot of people in our families. In the present very depressing moment, whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, I don't think you can look at the current situation and not feel um, sort of fear and horror. None of us want to try to get inside Putin's head at the moment, but we're all trying and trying to think, you know, what is he thinking? You wrote that America was taken by surprise by kind of the strength and the unity of the European response. I think sanctions have gone above and beyond what's expected for now. And, you know, it could be temporary. Moral outrage seems to be trumping economic interests. We've got McDonald's, Starbucks, Coca-Cola, Apple wanting nothing to do with Russia now. I mean, do you think Putin is surprised by how this is playing out? You wrote on the eve of the invasion that you didn't think sanctions would affect him. Now that we see that people are getting serious with the sanctions, do you still believe that? I think it is interesting that the sanctions are kind of snowballing like this. A lot of the companies that we see pulling out of Russia have not been compelled to do so. It's not just moral outrage that is causing it, but it's the kind of the downstream effects of sanctioning certain Russian banks and disconnecting them from the SWIFT system. So it becomes very difficult to be a company in Russia and get paid for your products. I think Putin has been surprised by many aspects of this. First and foremost, the fact that Ukraine didn't fall within a couple of days by the Ukrainian resistance and the fact that Ukrainians aren't greeting him as liberators. I also think he's been surprised by the swiftness and strength of the sanctions, the ones that were rolled out in 2014 after he invaded Ukraine the first time and annexed Crimea were tough and they had a big effect on the ruble and the Russian economy, but nothing close to this. And eventually Russia kind of regained its equilibrium. That's going to be a lot harder to do here, but I don't think personally it affects Putin. And there's a recognition of this in the White House as well, that these sanctions are meant to deter him because nothing will deter him at this point. He's doing this for his legacy, for Russia's world historical kind of imprint. He's not in it for the money anymore. If they do have an effect on him, it's to push him further into a corner and kind of double down on what he's doing. Although I can't see a scenario where he invades the way he did and doesn't want to go till the very end and conquer all of Ukraine with or without sanctions. I think the sanctions hurt Russians and upset him and make him more angry at the West, but I don't think they're going to prevent anything. And I think people in the White House and the Biden administration are very clear-eyed about that. They see this as punitive rather than preventative. He's this hyper-strategic control freak Things aren't going according to his plan. You say that, you know, he's clearly angry and frustrated. So 
zero chance of him being in any way open to a solution that, as they say, gets him down from the tree. Sounds like you think he's going to dig in even at the cost of a long and expensive Ukrainian, excuse the expression in Israel, occupation with an active insurgency going, you know, kind of a a long term uh, Afghanistan situation. As we can see, he's not a very good strategist. A very good strategist would have anticipated Ukrainian resistance, would have anticipated anti-Russian sentiment in Ukraine, would have anticipated sanctions, would have anticipated that this unites Europe and unites NATO rather than splintering it. Everything he's doing is now pushing even countries like Finland into the arms of NATO. And because he's not a very good strategist, he is going to get bogged down in Ukraine I don't know if it's going to be for weeks or months or years. And either result for him is kind of disastrous because what he had clearly envisioned for himself, and we see this from kind of slip ups in the propaganda machine, what he had envisioned is not coming to pass. And what does he do with that now? I don't think he can get down from the tree at this point. He has blown past every off ramp that had been offered to him. You know, last week, he spoke to French President Emmanuel Macron and told him he wants all of Ukraine. What does that look like given the massive Ukrainian resistance? I mean, even some of the cities they have taken, people keep coming out into the streets and protesting them. They have taken the cities militarily, but not politically. Like they don't really fully even have control of that. And we're too weeks into the war, which he thought would be over in two or three days. What I'm worried about is that this is going to be a serious scenario, that he, like Bashar al-Assad, he will fight to take back every inch or as much of the country as he can while grinding it down into the ground. So you believe he's going to fight to the end that the West is correct or the White House is correct in... uh Staying away from measures like a no-fly zone, supplying fighter jets to the Ukrainians in the view that he is willing and ready to escalate this thing. And therefore, these kinds of things should be held back from because we don't want to escalate, uh, God forbid, to a nuclear situation. I think those are two separate issues. So the no-fly zone would get the U.S. and NATO into a direct military confrontation with Russia. And then that's a whole other can of worms that puts the Baltics at risk, that puts Poland at risk. Putin has already threatened nuclear deterrence, and there's already a lot of talk that he might very well use a tactical nuke in Ukraine, but that spreads the nuclear risk to the rest of Europe. On the fighter jet issue, some of it is just purely logistical at this point. A lot of airfields have been bombed. The airspace is contested. You know, how do you get fighter jets in at this point? They were talking about MiG fighter jets, and those are ones that Ukrainian pilots already know how to fly. But the no-fly zone does risk having this spillover into... I mean, it would be World War III because it would mean NATO jets fight it, shooting down Russian jets. And then that's a NATO-Russia war, which is a world war. Let's put our focus back from World War III into my very provincial local angle here where um, we're thinking about what's going on uh, from an Israeli point of view. It's been wall-to-wall coverage here of the war, you know, obviously with so many Russian and Ukrainian emigres here. There's been a lot of internal criticism, domestic criticism politically here of uh, what people think is a wishy-washy response to the invasion uh, by Israel. Yeah, we're criticizing them. We're voting against them at the UN. But so far, we've refused Zelensky's request for 
any kind of military supplies. Israel is not forcefully jumping on the sanctions train with the rest of the West. And uh, it's because, and you know, uh, Prime Minister Naftali Bennett has been explicit in this, is to a certain extent we need to stay, it's felt, in Putin's good graces so that Israel can freely defend itself on its northern border against Iran. Very secondarily, maybe because to protect the interests of the Jewish community still inside Russia, but mostly it's about Syria and Iran. So there's a worry here that if we keep this up, keep trying to stay to whatever extent on the fence, that we're eventually going to really piss off the Biden White House. I mean, do you feel like it's true that Israel, you know, with the United States being such a important ally could be in danger of getting on the wrong side of the Biden administration and Congress if it keeps trying to balance this reaction and isn't more forcefully on one side? I've personally found the Israeli response to be deeply frustrating, especially given the fact that Zelensky is Jewish and the fact that his life is very much in danger. As for the question about angering the Biden White House and the Congress, I'm not sure because it's not like Israel is acting like Eritrea or North Korea and voting with the Russians and supporting them. Israeli government isn't exactly sanctioning or approving what Russia's doing, right? It's a balancing act. And I, I think at least in the Biden White House, there's probably an understanding of how tricky this is for Israel. I also don't think Israel is the focus for them right now. I think they're really focused on China and peeling China from Russia because there's a perception in Washington that the Chinese are extremely uncomfortable with what the Russians are doing. And given that it seems that Putin gave Xi Jinping warning about what he was going to do, and they agreed that it would happen after the Olympics, they want to make the Chinese government own the repercussions and the reputational damage of this invasion. That's the big focus. I think Israel is not even really a tertiary concern. And I think there is, again, I think there's a lot of sympathy in the US for like, okay, Israel's in a complicated spot. They're doing what they can. That doesn't mean people in wider American society aren't criticizing it, or especially in the American Jewish community for not taking a firmer stance on Ukraine. But I don't think it's what anybody's really thinking about right now. I mean, I don't know how much coverage has gotten in the U.S., but how odd is it that Putin invites or, you know, accepts an offer by Naftali Bennett to, uh, whether we don't know really, pass messages, mediate, but meet with Putin, talk to Zelensky, talk to Biden, you know, and also, you know, figures on the level of Bennett and on the level of Erdogan in Turkey. And then, you know, uh, before that, we had Macron, who's much more of sort of of a global uh, figure. Do you feel like Bennett is getting played by Putin? Do you feel like this is something that, okay, Bennett has to kind of show that he's uh, willing to help and do anything that he can? I mean, domestically, you know, oh, he looks like he's, you know, just like uh, Netanyahu. He's on the global stage. He's a player. So it's doing well for him domestically. But um, do you think this is doing him any good, you know, being seen as this mediator or message passer? I don't want to speak for the White House, but I don't think it's a bad thing. I think there was a very calculated move by Biden and his administration to basically, you know, no more phone calls. We tried to talk to you. We gave you so much time and attention. You still did this anyway. So we're not going to talk to you anymore. But I can't imagine that they're against other people trying. You know, I think they want this to end as soon as humanly possible. And so whether or not it it works is a different question, but I don't think they're averse to people like Macron or Bennett trying to find some kind of off-ramp that would end this war sooner rather than later. I don't think it's a bad thing to try. 
whether Putin takes the off-ramp is a different question because he has not backed down in any way from his maximalist demands. And his invasion has also made it harder for the Ukrainians because, you know, I talked to somebody in Zelensky's government and he said, okay, what does a solution even look like anymore? A diplomatic solution. Okay. They withdraw their troops and then what? That's it. We just act like nothing happened. No, they have to pay for what they've done. But I don't think anybody faults Bennett for trying. Can you explain to us how Putin frames this invasion as denazification, calling Ukraine, which is led by a Jew, you know, neo-Nazi force? We have a former Knesset member here, Ksenia Svetlova, and she wrote in Haaretz, for anyone who hasn't followed Russian TV during the last eight years, Putin's claims might sound weird, but presumably if you're following the Russian media, it doesn't sound odd. Can you explain to us, you know, how the Nazis fit into this? Yeah, she's absolutely right. And this has been a long motif. So there are two things. First, from the Russian point of view, there's this kind of original sin of Ukrainian nationalism, which is a person by the name of Stepan Bandera, who fought against the Soviets in World War II, which makes sense. You know, the Soviet rule in Ukraine was brutal. And there were Ukrainians that greeted the Nazis as liberators in 1941 because they couldn't imagine what Nazi occupation would bring. And they thought nothing could be worse than Soviet occupation. You know, they had just gone through this horrible famine in 1931, 1932, and collectivization in 1928. So there were Ukrainian nationalists that sided with the Nazis when World War II began and were very active in killing the Jews of Ukraine. Right. It has made Jews very wary of Ukrainian nationalism for a long time, but a lot of time has passed since then. Right, but you've got this Jewish comedian who's in charge of the country. So that's the first point. The second point is on the Maidan in 2013, 2014, there was an active neo-Nazi right-wing presence, the mm -hmm. right sector. Then there was the Azov Battalion that formed to fight the Russian invasion in the East, but they are a minority of Ukrainians, a minority of people fighting. And again, you have a Jewish president who was elected overwhelmingly. I understand that there is like, and I personally still have it, like there is something in me that, you know, Ukrainian nationalism, my first instinct is like, scary, but it has grown and evolved and it has become anti-Russian rather than Nazi. You know, Ukrainian nationalism has grown and evolved and because it is about liberating and freeing a country from Russian aggression, you know, there's also a Crimean Tatar, which is a Muslim community, which is also very into Ukrainian nationalism. Ukrainian nationalism has become kind of multi-ethnic and multi-confessional. One of the many ironic things about these allegations of Nazism is that for anybody who studied the post-Soviet space and is Jewish, there was a kind of conventional wisdom, sometimes spoken, but mostly unspoken, that neither Ukraine nor Russia could have a Jewish president because there was just so much thought to be so much ambient anti-Semitism in these two countries that the population would never accept it. So for example, it's why Boris Nemtsov was never really considered a serious contender to be Boris Yeltsin's successor because he's Jewish and the people thought that would never work. The Russian people would never accept him. It's why when Mikhail Khodorkovsky, the oil magnate, was trying to make a kind of larger political play, everybody, you know, before he was in prison, people were like, well, he can never be president. He's Jewish. Ukraine, on the other hand, overwhelmingly elected 
a Jewish president. And now they have a Jewish president, the only Jewish leader anywhere in the world outside of Israel. They have a Jewish prime minister and they're rallying behind him as their leader, as their national leader. I mean, he's doing a phenomenal job of being a wartime president. It makes the old historical, those kernels of truth on which Russian propaganda is based, right? That's the most effective kind of propaganda, not just a whole wholesale lie, but taking something small that is true and stretching it out of all proportion or anything resembling the original meaning or the original truth of it. It's what makes it so ridiculous. So turning while we're on the subject of um, distorting truth and fake news, etc. If your name sounds familiar to some of our listeners in the Jewish and Israeli world, it was because of that unpleasant 15 minutes of fame you had when anti-Semitic trolls attacked you online because they were unhappy with your coverage of Melania Trump. I know we journalists don't like to deal in hypotheticals. And this is a thought exercise, but um, just for fun, not really fun. But what do you think we would be seeing if we lived in an alternative universe and instead of a Biden administration, we were in the second term of Trump? Do you think that Putin would have been just as bold or bolder, gone, you know, done this if Trump was still in office? Or do you think in this alternative universe I'm drawing, Zelensky would have felt less empowered because there was no Biden administration? And so the whole process of him openly drawing closer to the West and angering Putin wouldn't have even happened. So we wouldn't be seeing this invasion. I say this on the background of, you know, criticism in the U.S. right wing of this is happening because Biden is too weak. It's amazing to hear them say that Biden is too weak. Because now you have John Bolton, one of Trump's many national security advisors, saying that if there had been a second term for Trump, he would have withdrawn from the US from NATO. So maybe Ukraine wouldn't have been invaded, but I think it would have been because of US weakness on the issue, because he would have been able to get everything he wanted from Trump. He would have not just gotten Ukraine not to join NATO, he would have gotten the very, basically the, the destruction of NATO. Because if the US pulls out, that's the end of NATO from Moscow's point of view. They see NATO as the US. They don't see it as NATO. They see NATO as basically a Trojan horse for US influence in Europe. And they think that the US is the only guarantor of security in Europe. So with the US out of NATO, if we're doing this thought exercise, then there's no danger anymore. And NATO, in Russia's point of view, falls apart. And I don't think that's seen as a sign of strength in the Kremlin. I also think that he wouldn't have armed Ukraine the way that the Biden administration has done. The subject of Trump's first impeachment was the fact that he was extorting Zelensky and suspending American military aid to Ukraine to get dirt on his political opponents. So maybe this wouldn't have happened, but to say that it wouldn't have happened because Trump is stronger on Russia is insane. To wrap up, I want to turn for a minute from uh, Putin to the Russian people. I mean, you have spent a lot of time there, spent, right? Mm -hmm. Years covering. So I went back and I read this article you wrote in 2016 about what you called the Putin generation. You wrote that uh, Putin has created a generation whose dreams are the embodiment of everything Putin desires them to be conformist, materialist, and highly risk averse. And you talked about how popular he was among young people who thought that he was, you know, giving their country stature in the world, military prowess, greatness, belief in their future. So I'm sure that you're in touch with a lot of people over there. 
How do you see this generation reacting to what is playing out now in Ukraine, the international reaction, the isolation from a risk-averse materialist point of view? It's not a very good uh, situation. And what do you make of the people who are going out in the streets protesting it? You know, some people are saying for every person out there, there's another hundred or maybe a thousand people who feels that way but uh, is afraid to actually say it. That might be true, but it is very hard to measure public opinion in an authoritarian country, and especially in an authoritarian country that turns totalitarian in, in the span of a week. I mean, there are definitely more people that disagree with Putin's invasion of Ukraine than went out into the street. But there have now been three polls that have come out that show that about two-thirds of Russians support this war. The caveat is that they support the war they're being shown on television because there's now basically no alternative sources of information or independent sources of information. And if you want to know what's really happening, you have to go out and look for it. And the people who are going to go out and look for it are people who are were against the war to begin with. A sociologist I spoke to said that it kind of breaks down by age, first and foremost. And Older people overwhelmingly support the war because they still don't see Ukraine as an independent country. Younger people are kind of 50-50. They're risk-averse and they're materialistic, but they're also more internationally minded than a lot of their parents and grandparents. They've traveled abroad. They consume foreign culture, American culture, European culture, and they don't understand this idea that Ukraine isn't a foreign country and they don't understand how anything can be solved through war. But at the same time, public opinion doesn't really matter. Nobody's asking their opinion. And Russians understand that their opinion doesn't matter because the men in the Kremlin will decide things for them. And that's just how things are. And they think that's how things are everywhere. People are just pretending and being hypocritical when they talk about democracy and citizens having an impact on their government's policy. They think that that's basically people lying to them, that every place is like Russia, where the old men in the Kremlin just decide things for us. And it's pointless to put yourself in a bad mood worrying about politics. Personally, a lot of the Russians I know have fled. So that's called voting with your feet, right? <laughs> yeah. And it's really sad. That is um, a special section of. Russian society. It's its most educated, it's most globally minded, it's most oppositional. And it seems like from what I've seen, about at least 100,000 people have fled Russia in the last week. Yeah, we have a new story up in Haaretz that um, the people here are gearing up for a wave of, you know, those who hadn't already emigrated from Russia and Ukraine are going to come. Julia Yaffe from Puck, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Coming up next, we talk to immigration and human rights attorney Yadin Elam on the difficulties facing Ukrainian immigrants seeking safe haven in Israel and why he opened up a hotline to help them. Yadin Elam is a veteran attorney who specializes in immigration law and human rights. I've interviewed him many times as a journalist regarding the struggles of asylum seekers in Israel on the difficulties that non-Jews encounter when they try to make their lives in Israel. Recently, he set up a free hotline for people trying to help Ukrainian refugees who want to seek safe haven in this country. Welcome to Haaretz Weekend. Yadin, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. 
So we're speaking a day after a big press conference. With much fanfare, our interior minister, Ayelet Shaked, announced a policy that she called a responsible policy, saying that a total of 25,000 non-Jewish Ukrainians can find safe haven in Israel. We speak as estimates are that 2 million refugees have flooded into the European Union, Eastern Europe, from Ukraine. 25,000 sounds like a really tiny percentage of that. And explain to me why this 25,000 number is kind of deceptive, too. There are no 25,000 people who are going to get a refugee status in Israel. There is not even one who is going to get a refugee status in Israel. Basically, Ayel Chaked did two things. First of all, the minute the war started, she forbade Ukrainians from submitting asylum requests. She represented it as a favor you don't need to because we are not going to deport any Ukrainian to a state where they cannot deport them anyhow. And then when she speaks about 25,000, she said, but 20,000 are already here. Now, First of all, I don't think that there are 20,000 Ukrainians that were in Israel before the war. So she's referring to people who she presumes came here on tourist visas, overstayed their tourist visas, are here illegally working, right? Well, it's more sinister than this. She includes in the 20,000 people who are legally in Israel. She includes the Ukrainian caretakers who are legally working in Israel. She includes the construction workers who legally work in Israel. There are no 20,000 illegal Ukrainians in Israel. There are no 20,000 Ukrainians in Israel, period. And that's not me saying this. This is from the data of the Ministry of the Interior itself. According to the official statistics, about 2,500 Ukrainians who are not eligible for Aliyah immigration to Israel as Jews have arrived in Israel since February 24th when the Russian invasion began. What kind of experiences are they having trying to, uh, to enter the country? When the war started, they said that every Ukrainian who has first-degree relatives can enter Israel with no conditions, and they will get a visa for a month. And after a month, if the war will continue, they will extend it by more. But this is a tourist visa. It doesn't give them any rights, no medical or the right to work. It's just a tourist visa. Were these the ones that they were requiring people put money deposits on, guaranteeing that they don't leave? No. So first degree relatives, you didn't have to put money on. If you invited second degree relatives or friends from the Ukraine, then they would require you to pay 10,000 shekels guarantee per person. About $3,000. Yes. And even if you had a family coming to visit and one of them was your brother, who is a first degree relative, so you don't have to pay for him. But if he comes with his wife and their three children, you would have to put 40,000 shekels because they would take guarantee also for babies who are newly born. So there was this big outcry, first of all, because taking money seemed like a terrible thing to do, A, and B, because the bureaucracy was really bad. People were, you know, waiting at the airports and the workers were taking their, you know, leaving for the, the Sabbath and people were stuck there at the airports and it was a really terrible situation. And then the news leaked out that, okay, the Interior Ministry is going to stop taking these money deposits. And I immediately saw you post on Facebook, let's not have the celebrations too early because they're going to stop taking the security deposits, the financial deposits, but they are going to 
cap, they're going to limit the number of people who can come in, correct? And that's yeah. what happened. What I said is that I think that what is going to happen is that they're not going to take guarantee from anyone, but they're not going to let anyone in from the group that they took guarantee before. And I said that I hope I will be proved wrong. Unfortunately, I didn't. And this is important to explain because when she gave the statement yesterday, as you said, there were about 2,500 out of the 5,000 that she said was the limit that already entered Israel. Since then, we're way more than 3,000. And the new policy is supposed to start on Saturday night at midnight. Right. And I expect that by midnight on Saturday night, the 5,000 will be full. Now, we have to understand what it means. It means that if you have parents in the Ukraine and you want to bring them to Israel for a few months when the war is going on, you will not be able to bring your parents. If you have a child from previous marriage who lives in the Ukraine and you want to bring them to Israel, you will not be able to do it. They didn't say we limit the number only for people who don't have first degree relatives. They said this is it. So because there are a few thousand illegal Ukrainians who stay in Israel illegally, Israelis with family ties, with relatives in the Ukraine will not be able to bring the relatives here. So your outrage at the situation, even before this latest <laughs> announcement, led you to post on social media that you're opening a hotline, that you're offering free assistance to people. What have your phone lines been like ever since then? What kind of people are calling? What are the stories you're hearing? Now that we're having a conversation, it's the first time that my phone has been silenced for a few <laughs> minutes. I mean, I get dozens of calls every day at all hours. In the beginning, it was for people who didn't know how to pay the guarantee and for people who didn't have money to pay the guarantee. And I, I got a lot of phone calls from Israelis who said, if there are people who cannot pay 10,000 shekels, please let us know, we'll pay the money for them. And I told him, you know, that I cannot guarantee that you will get the money back. And they said, yes, we understand it. And people came to the airport and deposited the money. So that was a lot of calls. Now, in the last few days, I get a lot of calls from people who are saying, will my relatives be allowed in? People called me this morning and said, well, we booked a flight for them for next week. And I said, I don't know if they will be allowed to board the flight next week. Because once the 5,000 camp is over, they will order the airlines not to allow people, uh, Ukrainian citizens, out on board. So, Wow. So you've been dealing with these kinds of situations for years. A lot of African refugees, African asylum seekers, etc. What does it mean for someone to be allowed into Israel and they're here long term, they can't go back because of the terrible conditions in their country. And yet they're not allowed to work. They have no social services, you know, if they get terribly sick. What kind of a life do they have uh, while they're kind of living here in limbo that way? Well, terrible. I would say this, listen, Israel has been trying to put asylum seekers through a lot of hardships, thinking that if a person have danger to his life in his home country, if he will not be allowed to work, if he will not get health insurance, he will just go back miraculously to his country. Well, obviously, this is not going to happen. Now, most of Eritrean and Sudanese refugees 
are allowed to work. They still don't get health insurance, but they are allowed to work. Now, the Ukrainians who came to Israel, this is a different story in a way because they came to their families and friends. Their families and friends many times are new immigrants to Israel, and they are not very strong financially to begin with. And now they have to take care of another three, four family members. Ayala Chaked said that, well, in a few months, if the war will not end, we will consider allowing them to work. Well, thank you very much, but they need to work now. Those of them who can. Obviously, there is a language barrier and some people are old, which is another issue because they're required to get health insurance. Even if you can pay, you cannot get health insurance for an eight-year-old. No company is going to insure them. So when you look at the emergency situation of these people who are fleeing their homes being bombed and the way that the Israeli government is approaching the situation, do you just see a complete mismatch or an inability to recognize the situation they're in? Because... You know, Israel has this history with illegal Ukrainians who come to work. So it seems like they're kind of stuck in that old mindset, right, in their approach to the Ukrainians. I don't think it's an old mindset, and I don't, I don't think that they don't recognize. Unfortunately, I think that they do recognize the situation, and this is the choice that they made. They just don't want to help. In their opinion, well, if Poland and Romania and Moldova... And Germany are accepting Ukrainian refugees. Why should we? And let me tell you, I'm not saying that Israel should accept every Ukrainian who wants to come to Israel. But the people who are coming are not people who decided to board a plane to Israel. Randomly, right. These are people who have family and friends in Israel. And to say again that you are an Israeli citizen and you cannot help your family members in this time of need, it's terrible. And there is another group that we tend not to think of because it is easy not to think of. And these are, as I said, the caretakers. There are mainly women who live in Israel for many years, who take care of our elderly. And usually they would go once a year to Ukraine to visit their family. Now they cannot go to the Ukraine. And I got calls from quite a few, both caregivers and employers who said, listen, we are ready to pay the guarantee and we want to allow the caregiver of our grandmother who takes care of her for 10 years to come to Israel. And this is heartbreaking, but I had to tell them they will not let them in. It doesn't matter if you're willing to pay a guarantee, they will just not let them in. Oh, it's a terrible situation and doing an amazing thing, I think, even by taking these calls and trying to help as much as possible. Yadin Elam, immigration attorney in Israel, good luck with your hotline. It's going to keep you busy for a long time, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that it will not keep me busy for a long time because the 5,000 will be over in two, three days and that will be the end, that will be the end of it. Well, we'll see. Maybe public pressure will change things. I hope so. We can only hope. That's right? why I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Alison. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekend. Thanks to my guests, Julia Yaffe and Yadin Elam, and to producer Dan Brumer and editor Maya Benisan. Don't forget to tune in next week to Haaretz Weekly with Amir Tibon. And until next time, Shabbat Shalom from Tel Aviv. <laughs>